Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. It's a very special episode. We're going to be talking today with Professor Donald Drakeman about an interesting topic, a topic that might be that ordinary citizens, our listeners think, what does this have to do with me? This seems like a topic for lawyers or judges or legal scholars, but it turns out to be very important for American citizens and for the future of America. And that is the question, how should we interpret the Constitution? Turns out there's a lot of dispute over that, and the answer to that question matters greatly for our understanding of the American idea and for the future of the country. And as I mentioned today, joining me in that conversation about the question, how should we interpret the Constitution, is Professor Donald Drakeman. Professor Drakeman is Distinguished Research Professor at the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, he, his work has been cited by the United States Supreme Court uh, and the Supreme Court of the Philippines. So he has both a national and international reach as a scholar. He is the founding chairman uh, of the advisory council of the very wonderful James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. He is a prolific author, uh, written numerous articles and books on religion, law, and constitutional interpretation. And in particular, we're here to discuss today his interesting, provocative, and in some ways groundbreaking book, The Hollow Core of Constitutional Theory, Why We Need the Framers, published very recently by Cambridge University Press. Donald Drakeman, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Let me ask you this. It, your, your biography is not typical, I think, <laughs> for, a, for a constitutional scholar. <laughs> You've had a very distinguished professional career as a venture capitalist, um, as a business executive, and now as a scholar of the U.S. Constitution. How did you get from there to here? Well, it's really interesting, and, and, uh, and, and I, I might say... I, I was in the biotech industry. I tried for 30 years to cure cancer. I, I thought I'd move on to something harder, which was to figure out the Constitution. <laughs> uh, but when you think about it, the parallels are kind of interesting. Uh, when you're running a company, management sets the strategy and uh, adopts plans for achieving the, the goals that, that the shareholders in the company are aiming for. And then the employees go out to do it. And uh, you expect them, on the one hand, to be you know, thoughtful and, and to do, use their best judgment as they implement those plans. But you also expect them to be faithful interpreters of what the company has set out to do. You want them to, to, to do what the company is trying to achieve and not what they might think is a better idea. And when you turn to looking at the Constitution, you get the same issue. Uh, you know, are judges really out there as independent actors to, to, you know, make new decisions about what policy ought to be? Or is their job to interpret what the lawmaker, the legislature for a statute or the framers for a constitution uh, originally wanted to do? And my view in both cases is, is you know, 
you have one group setting the policy, you have another group interpreting it, but you want them to do it faithfully. And so that's, that's the big turn from, uh, from you know, running a company to trying to uh, sort out the Constitution. Huh. So that is a really interesting question. It's a, I, I love that analogy. Um, it, it makes sense to think about that as a legal scholar. Not all of our listeners, of course, are legal scholars constitutional analysts like you have become. Um, for, the, for the average citizen, for our listener, why does it matter, in your opinion, how we, and particularly how judges, should interpret the Constitution? It matters, in my view, way too much. Uh, I think the Supreme Court, in particular, has, has started becoming a major, if not the major policy decision maker on some of the most important and contentious, you know, politically divisive issues of our time. And, you know, we're a, we're a democracy, a republic. We're, we're, we've not appointed uh, the Supreme Court to be the, the final decision maker on all of those important topics. We're going to try to sort it out uh, as citizens through our elective bodies. And I think What's happened is that, that the notion of interpretation, what it means to interpret a constitution, has gotten bent so far out of shape that courts are now able to kind of step in and just, you know, all right, nobody else is making a decision here, we're going to do it. And I think, I think the answer is no, we judges or those judges should uh, look to what the, the lawmaker uh, was setting out in terms of direction and not take the country independently in any particular direction. And I say that whether the court is dominated by liberals or conservatives or anybody else. The bottom line is, are judges uh, the right, you know, the Supreme Court the right place to make these decisions? That's not the way we designed the country. And I think it's, you know, just from modern decision-making scholarship, small groups of elites who are similarly educated and who never get outside their own judicial chambers are really not very good at making decisions for uh, an entire polity. So I think we need to get interpretation back to what it has always been. And that's why I wrote the book. Huh. That's fascinating. It reminds me in many ways of Lincoln's first inaugural address when he's talking about the Dred Scott decision. He says, if the Supreme Court is the final decision maker on questions of policy affecting the whole country, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers. And the, obviously, so that's really important. Let me just, in your wonderful book, The Hollow Core of Constitutional Theory, let me read you to you. <laughs> here's, what, here's what you say when you talk about the thesis of the book. I will argue that the central goal of interpretation is discerning the will of the lawmaker. Why is that a controversial thing that needs to be stated in this book? That was what interpretation has meant from about the time of the Romans uh, through uh, the English jurisprudence that the, that the founders inherited all the way through the 19th century in America. Everybody agreed that's what interpretation was. And then for the last roughly 50 to 100 years, it has, as they say across uh, in England, wandered off the pitch. It has, uh, it has moved into this, this living constitution, which uh, allows 
remarkable degree of flexibility for, for judges to impose their own ideas on the court. And the other end of the spectrum has become a very kind of scholastic, formalistic originalism in which people get out dictionaries and try to figure out what, what the man in the street uh, or the person in the street in the 18th century meant by the word an or the or religion or topics like that. And we've lost the, the main theme uh, by overreacting to each other, the originalists overreacting to this creativity of the living constitution and uh, setting up this uh, formal scholastic approach. We've lost the kind of the main core message, which is there were a group of lawmakers who were put to, who came together to make that law and they, they chose this law embodied in this text for reasons. They, they had a rationale, they had a goal in mind, they had a way to achieve that goal in mind, and it has always been the role of the courts to find out what that was and to act consistently with it. So, and that's what brought me to this topic. So that's fascinating because you're going all the way back to the Romans, as you said, and you're saying the long tradition of jurisprudence in Western civilization from the Romans through the Middle Ages into England, and then of course from England into the United States is, judges ought to be interpreting laws according to the intention of the lawmaker. That's Absolutely. The, it that, was Coke in the 16th century, Blackstone in the 17th century. It, it was just a story uh, in the 19th century. It just, the, nobody disagreed with that. Uh, and now no one agrees with it. Uh, and so when you say I, my, my book is groundbreaking, if, if there's any ground I'm trying to break, it's very old ground. I'm trying to, <laughs> to bring back uh, the, the, what the foundation of interpretation has always been. Well, look, if that's always been the foundation of interpretation, um, how in the world have we gotten away from it? What has caused us to move away from what you, you call you know, centuries, centuries, millennia, uh, of understanding a judge's role? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there are more answers than, than I can give. Uh, let's just say that, that in the early 20th century and through the first half of the 20th century, we had wars and depressions and, and, and government uh, sort of began to reimagine itself as, uh, as much more of a national entity. Um, and, uh, Supreme Court justices were appointed who took the opportunity uh, in times of crisis and thereafter to uh, interpret the Constitution in, in very flexible ways. Uh, whether you agree with those, those interpretations or, or the policy outcomes or not, the point is that all of a sudden, as, as a Harvard scholar recently said, there's really nothing anymore that interpretation really just is. The interpretation is just whatever set of good arguments you can make to, to convince somebody to do what you'd like. And uh, I think, you know, the answer is there actually is something that interpretation just is, and it is what the Supreme Court does most of the time. In non-controversial cases, they, 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 they take very much these these good old-fashioned approaches to what was what what do the words mean? What were the, the the what was the legislature trying to do with this statute? When it comes to constitutional interpretation, the big issue is they said to forget all that and 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 get into this um, 
new dynamic. And so, you know, the bottom line is we need to scale back both our notion of interpretation and the, and the role of the court. I found one of the most provocative arguments in your book is it's not just living constitutionalists. It's not just those attached to the contemporary meaning of the Constitution who have gotten away from this. You also talk about and critique originalism, which really comes to, you know, arises in many ways in the 70s and especially 80s as a reaction against the living Constitution. But now you're saying originalists have also, in many ways, abandoned the intentions of the framers. What's your argument there? Yeah, what's happened is, is by overreacting, and, and this is human nature, we, we, we see something that we think isn't right, and then we, we kind of go uh, as far as possible in the other direction. They've overreacted and, and instead want to nail this down to something in particular. And what they saw was that um, a lot of the justices you just described and others who took a very flexible approach to interpretation tried to hang their hat on, on some potentially out-of-context statements by famous framers. Jefferson might have said this one day. Maybe not to, about the Constitution, but he said it. Or Madison or one of the other uh, well-known figures. And so how do we get away from the originalist thought, this cherry-picking, this concept of, of going through the, the, the framers who are are and remain popular with many members of the public and for good reasons. Uh, how do we cherry pick, you know, their most uh, sort of modern sounding progressive statements and throw them in? And so how, the way to get rid of that, says the originalists, would be just we're going for the actual, you know, sort of dictionary definitions without realizing that there weren't really dictionaries like there are today and that you can't easily figure out what the person in the street meant in an environment in which the person in the street might speak German, uh, might, you know, in one area like New England, have a, come from a very different area of Europe and, and use language in a very different way than happened in Virginia, where there's some famous early cases where that's happened, where, in fact, the framers say to each other, you know, you in New England use these words really differently than, than we use them in Virginia, and you're putting them in the statute. So what do they mean? And ultimately, the answer is what they mean is what the, the framers were trying to accomplish by using those words, not that Virginia wins or New England wins. Uh, so we've got an overreaction, and what I think we need to get back to is looking at not just what words meant or what somebody might have said uh, at some point in the 18th century. But what did the group of people, the framers, the people who were present at the Constitutional Convention or in the Bill of Rights, the people who were present in the first Congress, when they sat down and, and argued about these provisions, when they negotiated the compromises that led to many of these provisions, what were they doing? What were they trying to achieve? Uh, what ends were they after? What were the means they chose? And you can get a lot of information about that if you look for it. We've just stopped looking for it because it wasn't convenient for either of the ends of this, this originalist living constitutional spectrum. And my argument is we need to get back there and just look at what these individuals in the room haggled over.
and where they came out and why they came out there. Um, Justice Scalia, who you mentioned in your book, was a, a, a well-known critic. He was an originalist, of course, claimed to be originalist, said originalism is the lesser of the two evils, um, but was very critical of, of the attempt to define legislative intent, to, inti- to intent uh, judges making decisions based on the attempt to find the intention of the framers rather than what he and then later scholars, as you know, say, call original public meaning. Um, what are some of the criticisms that some of these originalist scholars leveled against a jurisprudence of original intention? So there, there are two big ones. One is, uh, and this sounds like it's going to be the, the, the end of intentionalism, uh, that the framers really weren't the, the, uh, the people who made the law. We want to look at the people who made the law, and according to the Constitution, the ratifiers. This becomes law when, the, when it's ratified. So ratifiers are the key people. Uh, and that's a fascinating argument because by making that argument, modern day originalists are falling into a trap the framers set for them. The Articles of Confederation were our constitution when this happened. And the Constitutional Convention was called under the Articles. And the goal of that convention was just to make some suggestions for amendments to the Articles of Confederation. And for those amendments to be effective, they would have to be approved by the legislature of every single state. So one, one state saying no would be enough to, to stop the amendment from happening. They got to the convention, they decided, well, you know, it would be a whole lot better if we just rewrote the whole thing and made a new constitution, which was way outside the authority they'd been given. And so they wrote a whole new constitution. And they didn't want to submit it to the state legislatures because maybe they wouldn't get the legislatures to uh, approve it or they only needed one to say no. So they made up this concept. It was a newfangled thing called ratification. And they said, well, we're going to have ratifying conventions to which they're going to try to get their friends uh, appointed. And it's going to be ratified on the approval of of only essentially a a supermajority, but not all of the the states. So states would be potentially dragged along into this constitution if they didn't go along. And so when we say that the ratifiers are the ones that made the law, the framers are sort of smiling from, from the great beyond saying, well, that's what we wanted you to think. But in fact, this whole ratification thing was another policy set by the framers that had a specific end and specific means in mind. And uh, if we buy into that, we need to buy into their other ends and means, in my view, and that is to look at what they debated and how they talked about these provisions. So that's the first one. And then the second big issue, and this is a a good one, and, and, and this is made by living constitutionalists and originalists. Everyone agrees with this except me and the few other people who, who are arguing for intentionalism these days, is how do you have an intention of several dozen framers at the convention? Right. And that is, is the result of a misnomer. 
intention is fine when we're talking about the really old days. We've inherited this language, again, back from the Roman emperors, where we had an emperor and what he said went. So we're talking about his intention. But really, when we get to a legislative body, uh, when the English parliament or, or uh, the Congress or the convention, when you talk about a group of people, what you're looking for is the intention of the group. So you have a bunch of people, and they may have different individual intentions when it comes to a particular provision. They, they, they came in with their desires and hopes and what their states wanted them to get, and they conflicted. And they argued about it. And at the end of the day, that group had rules. The rules was, if we all agree to this or agree by a majority or if it's ratified or whatever the rules it says, that the group makes for itself for a decision, their intention is to make a law, to make a constitution as a group. They all know what that provision is designed to do and why it's designed to do it. And maybe 20% of them are against it and 80% of them are for it but they all know what the one thing, the end and the means was. They just, some people didn't like the end or didn't like the means. So the goal then is to, to look for that group's intention, what, what the Constitutional Convention or the first Congress was trying to accomplish with that law and how they were trying to accomplish it. And that gives us a, a concrete single intention to look for and also teaches us that we can't just cherry pick a quotation from those debates from James Madison or any of the other famous framers uh, because we're not looking for, for what he hoped to achieve. We're looking for what the, the group as a whole ultimately decided to do. Uh, we can use Madison or James Wilson or any of their, their comments as interesting aspects of a debate that led to a conclusion, but not as if these are the, the proof texts by which we, we interpret everything and through the, the eyes of one founder. So I think that's a, a key point and, uh, and really eliminates the, what's, what's been the, the, the kind of the intellectual core of the anti-intention uh, crowd, which is this notion of uh, um, all the possible intentions of a group. Let, let me, let me, let, let's, uh, I'm fascinated by this. You bring up a particular example in your book <clears throat> that, that others have brought up too in criticizing original intention approach saying, in fact, we don't, we, we don't on some really important issues, you bring up the establishment clause. Mm -hmm. Lots of people and scholars, if you know, have said, the search for an original intention for the establishment clause of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. It can't be found because Thomas Jefferson or James Madison, in the case in particular there, has a very different view from New England members of Congress. It can't be found. How do you respond to that criticism? I, I, that comment is, is the perfect comment because it says, well, then we have to find a meaning that they both could agree on. And so we're not looking for whether James Madison won or Fisher Ames from Massachusetts won this debate. Uh, and I have to say, when it comes to, to 
folks who have strong views about politics, uh, who look back at the, at the framing, you know, it's just very natural for us to look for people whose views are like ours and for us to assume they must have won. So let's come up with all the evidence that people who said things like I think won this debate. Frequently, they argued and disagreed about the same things we do, and they came up with compromises that everybody could live with. So my interpretation from the Establishment Clause, or the, you know, the, that which has been called the separation of church and state, which I think is not what they were after, uh, is how do you get these people with wildly, just completely different views on the relationship of religion and government to agree? And in fact, they agree easily. There's no controversy over it. Nobody, there's no letters to the editor. People aren't protesting uh, as there had been in the state of Virginia and as there had been in the state of Massachusetts when their own constitutions were talking about church and state. Those were really hot, disputed issues. In the first Congress, it's, oh, yeah, no big deal. Now, what could have been no big deal? And the answer is the one thing that everybody was against and nobody was for, which was a Church of the United States like the Church of England. So we're going to agree Congress is not going to set up a national church. Some nations, like many nations have them, we're not. Full stop, period. That's all we decided. We didn't decide whether it was good for government to, to foster religion. We didn't say that the government should be separated from religion. We're just, we just said we're not going to do that. Just like with the, um, the, the amendment says we're not going to court in private land, you know, with, except in times of war. You, know, you can't just park your, you know, platoon on somebody's private property. Well, that's not a big policy statement about the relationship of civilians and military personnel. It's a statement that things that went on around that time that nobody liked weren't going to happen anymore. The national church idea is something that went on that nobody liked. We're not going to have it anymore. So that's, that's how I see this, and it makes, in some ways, it, it, it makes the, the big controversial issues that we still have over church and state, uh, the, the political debates and everything else, um, active live debates, just like they were at the framing. And if you've got people who diametrically opposed each other on those topics today, we'd have a hard time agreeing on a statement of any important policy matter. So yeah. we wouldn't, and they didn't. They, they agreed on something unimportant, and that's in the Constitution. It's created headaches ever since. <laughs> so we, what, you can, what you're saying is to f understand the intention of a legislative body, uh, like the framers or a convention like, or, or like the Congress, you would say, as you just said, what is it that they could all agreed on, those who voted in favor of the measure, and those who voted against the measure agreed that that's what it meant. That's why they voted against it. Let's go, I don't want to call it the lowest common denominator, but the, the, the broadest ground of agreement. I think that, that's a fair, fair statement, absolutely. Okay, let, let me ask you this though. There have, been, there have been different kinds of original intention arguments. One of them has been, uh, how do we know the original intention? Let's, let's be good historians. Let's do the kind of work that you suggest here in the book and, and do in the book. Then there are others who have said, 
to get the full understanding of the founder's intentions and the framer's intentions, we need to understand the philosophy, the political thought that is behind their ideas. Uh, which is it to you or is it both? I think it, to understand what they're talking about in the, the convention of the first Congress, it's hard to, and it would be a mistake to ignore the, the bigger ideas floating around out there. Um, uh, what's interesting uh, is the question of how should a court deal with those bigger ideas? Uh, and and as, as one example, the, the idea of, of inalienable rights in the Declaration of Independence and whether that is kind of infused itself uh, uh, into the Constitution, even if they're right. not stated in that same way. And um, in my view, uh, whether, whether judges should be reaching out into that broader world of inalienable or other rights, uh, which by the way, people disagreed about then as they do disagree about them now, but uh, the, the kind of work that, that, uh, that my colleague Philip Munoz at, at Notre Dame is doing, I think is just the right approach, which is he's saying, all right, I've got to interpret the free exercise clause of the, of the First Amendment to see if it's reflecting these rights that, that I, I recognize uh, from the Declaration and other places in terms of the natural right of, of religious uh, freedom and liberty of conscience. Then he says, I'm going to trace that through. And so he uses the state constitutions as a vehicle by which he is making an argument that these kind of bigger, broader background philosophical ideas are, have, have in fact worked themselves into our legal vocabulary and therefore into the Constitution. You can, he's got a, a really interesting book coming out on that and he's already had a series of articles. Uh, and you can look at that and, and see how persuasive you see his arguments, but, but the, it, what I'm focusing on right now is the method, which is to say, all right, I, I, need to, I can't just assume things out there are, because out there is a large group of philosophies and theologies that people brought with them from many places. We, we were a nation of immigrants. Uh, we, people brought their belief systems with them and, and we need to be cognizant of the diversity of those belief systems at the time. And if we think there was a dominant one and that dominant one should infuse our constitutional knowledge, we need to, we need to have good evidence of that. And I think um, that kind of work is just the kind of work that, that scholars can be doing uh, and that can help inform uh, the Supreme Court. Um, but as early as you know, the 1790s, the Supreme Court was asked to apply natural law where, you know, on, on a subject and the justices were saying, you know, which one? <laughs> which uh -huh. natural law? Uh, people, you know, we get this group that tells us the content is A, and that other group tells us the content is B. So it's those same issues of of what is the specific content uh, of of those inalienable rights or what have you, and how to apply it in an interpretive setting has been a uh, a challenging issue since the beginning of the Supreme Court, and it's not going to end. And the best way to to make it less challenging 
is to is to do the work, write the footnotes, and and be as as careful in your historical analysis as possible. So, if we're going to go back then in this way to the intention of the framers to avoid that kind of uh, what you're suggesting would be overreached by judges, it does raise the question, and, and of course, people immediately, as you know, will will ask the question. All right, does that mean we have to interpret the Constitution exactly as the framers would have? They're 1787, 1789, we're 2021. The, the answer to that is, is the, the framers knew. Uh, many of them were lawyers, and they read a lot more legal history than we read in law school and, and elsewhere. <clears throat> the concept that, that meanings evolve over time and that, that judges will have no choice but to to look at how to apply old laws to new situations. That had existed from the time of the Romans. And, uh, and so this is not a, a, a new concept. In fact, the, the argument made by some originalists that uh, so-called the fixation thesis, that words that, that were used in the Constitution have the meaning that they had on that day and never changes would have been a foreign concept to the, to the lawyers and judges at the time of the framing. But what they had inherited also from that tradition of Western jurisprudence was a disciplined approach to figuring out how to apply old laws to new circumstances. And that was to say, the role of the judges is to discern the original will of the lawmaker and then see how the new situation had affects essentially uh, the ends and the means chosen. And so judges, uh, as Keith Whittington has said, judge, it, involve, judging involves a certain amount of judgment. And, and, and this is a place where it, where it needs to happen. And I'll give an example of the, the, the justice who is probably most against updating of all the justices we could name, and that's Justice Scalia who in a case involving uh, uh, the you know, uh, criminal law case involving a use of an electronic detective to determine that there was illegal drug activity going on inside a house, uh, thought that was uh, an unreasonable search and seizure, even though nobody entered the premises. Now, at the time, in, in, in the, the uh, time of the founding, an unreasonable search and seizure was when someone took a battering ram to your front door and came in and grabbed whatever they could find. There wasn't a whole lot of, of, of delicacy to those processes. How that applies to modern technology and to what extent our notion of, of the privacy of our own homes changes in light of the electronic uh, world is is not an easy one and even justice scalia for all his devotion to the original meaning realized that you've got to be able to adjust to, to to new eventualities so we're not stuck in the world of the uh, of the the 18th century and the framers knew if they put in a word uh like you know due process or equal protection clauses like that that there's flexibility inherited in, in, in using that kind of language. And if they meant something very particular, I mean, they were clever draftspeople. They were, they were, they were good at this. If, if they wanted us to do something very specific, 
they could say, do this very specific thing. We know how old presidents have to be. Right. They didn't say we want a mature person as president. Uh, and so uh, they, they were, they were, we got to give them credit for being smart. And one being aspect of being smart is knowing what it meant for a, a law or constitution to endure and to be interpreted over time. But there are nevertheless limits. And the, the limit that they would have expected and the limit that we should expect uh, is that, that the courts will, will interpret in light of the will of the lawmaker and not the will of the court. So you say that and make the strong argument in your book that this approach really has been lost in many ways, of course, on the living constitutional contemporary side, but as we were just talking about, on those who adhere to originalism, they've sort of abandoned the intention of the, of the framers as a, a source of meaning for judges. But the contemporary court, the current court that we have right now, in your mind, is there someone on the court, a justice, that you think is doing this kind of original intention jurisprudence that you outline in your book more so or better than others? Interesting question. I think that, um, that certainly as between among the originalists on the court uh, and, and intentionalism, for better or worse, feels more like originalism than it feels like the living constitution. But it really is, just to back up for a second, then I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer your question, which is a hard question. But originalism is, and living constitution are ancient arguments also, but, but they were both directed and under the umbrella of the will of the lawmaker. So there, was, there were arguments back and forth under that umbrella about whether the meaning at the time of enactment should be the, the meaning that is used most of the time. It's our sort of go-to meaning, but that there will be times when you need to have an updated meeting, you need to be able to address new circumstances, all in light of the will of the lawmaker. And other times when, especially as in Europe, when Roman law got to be like, you know, 500, 600, 700 years old, they're saying, we're applying really old laws here. And we have to apply them to circumstances many, many centuries later. The dominant approach ought to be more towards an updated approach. And we should worry less about what the, you know, was said in Latin originally. But those are arguments that both go to, to how we can best and most faithfully apply the will of the lawmaker to the situation at hand. Once you take away the will of the lawmaker, then it's just, should we just figure out what kind of updated meaning can we give to these words or how can we nail these words down to, to an 18th century meaning? And, and I think both of those extremes don't recognize the, the real uh, sort of the opportunity involved in governance associated with actually having a, a, a core idea, which is that the will of the lawmaker is what we go by. And if we don't like the will of the lawmaker, we say, gee, we think it's a lousy will, but, but that's the law. So now to the, the justices. I think Justice um, uh, Scalia, you know, sort of wouldn't admit to it, but he, you know, when he saw the, the need, he would, he would go ahead and realize that, that he has to look to what the broader, broadly, what the framers are trying to achieve rather than just the, the 18th century context. 
Um, I think that Justice Thomas has been much more focused on the framers, which is good. He and I on, you know, on the Establishment Clause see things slightly differently, but, 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 but not, th not that differently. Um, and I think that, um, that other justices have used the framers to varying degrees of, of um, uh, you know, sort of consistency with those original intentions. <clears throat> framers pop up in about a third of the Supreme Court cases. Interestingly enough, I mean, they, they've oh, really? not disappeared okay. from the Supreme Court like they disappeared from constitutional theory. Uh -huh. so, so I think that, that it's hard to say there, there's anybody on the court that, that has said, uh, we're following the Drakeman doctrine here on out, although it'd be just <laughs> fine if they said that we're following Blackstone and Koch and Story and Cicero and everybody else. Um, but I... Um, but I think that, that the fact that the, the Supreme Court, both on the, the, the more progressive wing of the court and the conservative wing of the court, that everybody still has a, some due regard for the importance of the framers, will provide a basis if more people start getting the idea that this is really what interpretation has been and should be. To, to have an anchor there, as opposed to any particular one justice who is, as Ju Justice Scalia did for original public meaning, kind of banging the gavel for, this is the one true way. Mm. So your book, is it, a, is, it a, is it written with the hope of really reviving a, a rootedness of interpretation in the will of the lawmaker? Or is this a last gasp? And are we destined to <laughs> have this division and, and not return to thinking about interpretation in light of the will of the lawmaker? What's your sense? Well, so that's an interesting question. What, what I will say is that, that the idea that, that judges have, have overclaimed their territory, have gone beyond the, the natural interpretive approaches that make them faithful uh, implementers of the, the will of the lawmaker uh, is as old as interpretation. And uh, every few centuries, we see some big events where the other branches of government, I mean, this is really at a heart a separation of powers question, and other branches of government have come along. Uh, the Emperor Justinian, I mean, and, and uh, no one was more focused on putting written laws together than Justinian. He, um, he ultimately got so frustrated that he issued a decree saying that, that judges who basically overinterpreted or, or did not uh, follow a very narrow approach um, would be um, thrown out of the country and all their property would be, uh, would be seized. So that, that, of course, led to judges being a bit more uh, <laughs> careful about the interpretive <laughs> approaches. Early court packing, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, so the, uh, King Charles I in England, uh, around the time that, that the Puritans were coming to America, uh, issued a decree that said, uh, if you're a, a, a judge or a law professor and you interpret too liberally, uh, we're going to refer you to the Star Chamber, which, again, was, uh, you know, 
somewhat more robust response than than Roosevelt's court packing. That's threat. right. Yeah, and Biden's potentially. So we've got a new commission. Uh, uh, President Biden has has, has gotten a, a number of uh, constitutional law scholars together to talk about what could be done to reform the court. Uh, and you know, my hope would be that that any reformation discussed would not be so much about how do we get the court to achieve a particular political you know, outcome in specific cases, uh, but, but how do we return the court to the role that, that, that judges have always played, and which is just essential for, for a healthy democracy, um, but that, that has gotten a bit blown out of, out of proportion and now has them making more policy decisions than they ought to be. And so, uh, I don't know, I, hopefully these days all scholars are thinking uh, about how their, their, um, uh, their work may lead to an improvement in our lives. Uh, I, I'm not sure that, that, that the Biden Commission or anybody else is gonna hold my book up and say, uh, this is the new Bible of interpretation. But if it, if it has more conversations with, with folks like you, if we can get more people thinking about, well, what should judges really be doing rather than just railing at, you know, the, the decisions we don't like, uh, I think that would be a, a healthy move for public discourse. It certainly would be a, a healthy move toward a thoughtful public discourse. And really, you're calling on judges, lawyers, the legal academy and citizens to rethink how judges interpret and maybe restrain themselves in this way and return themselves, as you argue, to a more traditional role. Um, this is a great conversation. It's a conversation that is clearly going to continue across the legal academy, in judges, in law schools, and across the American public. Donald Drakeman, thank you so much for joining in that conversation and for spurring that conversation with your book, The Hollow Core of Constitutional Theory, Why We Need the Framers. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AmIdeaPodcast. From the SRAM Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickett.